0: too many papers juggling around. Lost my sermon notes with my announcement sheet. Paul's presence is noticeably absent in this particular paragraph, yet his, his walk with Christ is front and center. Before we jump into the text this morning, let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand by his spirit what exactly is being said and presented to us by, by scripture this morning. Would you please... Bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for this account. It reinforces to us, Lord, that we are only saved by our union with your son. We are only saved if we have become one with Christ, if we've been baptized into Christ, if we have hoped only in what he has done for us on the cross. Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at this account, these seven Jewish exorcists, these seven sons of Siva, we pray, Lord, that you use this this morning to remind us that apart from a real saving relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, there will be no deliverance. There will be no salvation. Lord, we pray this morning that you would drive this truth home into our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It should be very encouraging to us when we read stories similar to, uh, to this, what we're about to encounter here in Acts chapter 19. It should be very encouraging to us to hear of the triumphs of the gospel 2,000 years ago in the first century. It's not a matter only of history But it is a matter of practical encouragement for the present day. And the reason for why it is a matter of practical encouragement for the present day is because the gospel that was proclaimed 2,000 years ago that set people free, that drove out demons, that brought about salvation is the same gospel that we are preaching today. If we preach the gospel at all, If any church, if any pastor, if any Christian preaches the gospel at all, he's preaching the same message as the Apostle Paul preached. And so when we encounter these stories in the book of Acts, we can be encouraged in the same way that God worked to bring about deliverance through that that gospel 2,000 years ago. He brings about the same deliverance through the same gospel today. And we know that as Paul encountered these people in Ephesus... There were some real, real, real difficult sinners in the mix. And yet, we have difficult sinners in the mix today. The same gospel that saved them in the first century is the same gospel that can save us in the 21st century. Because the men that were alive back then, wicked though they were, were not any more or any less wicked than the men who are alive today. It's the same sinners. It's the same kind of sin. It's the same kind of hard-hearted rebellion against the Lord. And more than this, it is not you and me who bring about salvation. It is the word of Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus preached in the power of the Spirit. And the same Spirit that the Apostle Paul drew upon in the first century is the same Spirit that we have today indwelling us all those of us who have hoped in Jesus Christ. So we have the same gospel, we have the same sinners, we've got the same spirit of power, and just like Paul faced in the first century, we still encounter even today the same fraudsters, the same charlatans, the same opponents of the gospel as what he experienced in the first century. Today, we are surrounded by all these so-called Christians who are preaching the so-called gospel, yet it is utterly false what they often proclaim. For the past few years, lists of Christian bestsellers have been topped book after book after book by individuals claiming fresh Revelation from Jesus Christ, a new gospel, a new word for the modern day. Before that, Christian bestseller lists were overrun by books describing people's supposed journey into heaven and describing what we would see there in heaven. And all of this was making for them a tidy profit. And before that, there was that bestselling novel by William Paul Young, The Shack, a novel that reframed the doctrine of the Trinity into just an abhorrent an abhorrent recategoriz- recategorization of it of course all of this meant to get it on the best selling list and of, and of course we see churches all around north america today presided over and preached at by preachers who offer up as platitudes uh, nonsense that does not conform with scripture I basically have turned the gospel into fortune cookies. I've turned a real relationship with Jesus into nothing more than a talisman, a magic talisman, or perhaps you might consider it a lucky rabbit's foot, something that we can tuck away in our pocket and hold on to for a rainy day. They have reduced it from a personal relationship with the living God to nothing more than a lucky charm. A cross, perhaps, that you wear around your neck, or a favorite Bible that you tuck away into your pocket. And what we see here in Acts chapter 19 is that Jesus is no talisman. Jesus is no lucky rabbit's foot. And so if you're listening this morning, if you're here with us worshiping this morning, I invite you to consider whether or not your walk with Christ is nothing more than just a charm that you hold on to, or whether or not you have truly surrendered to Jesus as Lord of your life. What we will see in the text this morning is that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is no Savior to you at all. We begin in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. That first verse is crucial. It isn't the greatness of Paul. It isn't the holiness of Paul. It isn't the righteousness of Paul. It isn't his great learning. It isn't his achievements as one of the leading rabbis, Jewish rabbis before his conversion. It isn't any of his accomplishments. It isn't any of his accolades. It isn't any of his heritage, his raising, his upbringing, being born of the tribe of Benjamin. None of that is accounting for the miracles we see here in Acts chapter 19. The scriptures are incredibly clear. Verse 11 says explicitly, God was doing extraordinary miracles By the hands of Paul. The real author of these miracles, the one doing the miraculous, was not Paul, it was God. It was the Lord working through Paul. Verse 12, he worked in some amazing ways. He worked indeed to draw attention to Paul because. Paul was preaching the gospel, but it was not Paul doing it. It was the Lord doing it through Paul. Verse 12 says that even the handkerchiefs or the aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now that is something dramatic and miraculous, to be sure. The Apostle Paul, though, isn't there primarily to do the dramatic and the miraculous. He's there to preach the salvation of Jesus Christ. The passage right before this, beginning in verse 8, says that he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And then verse 10 tells us that this continued for two years. Paul is reasoning from the scriptures, and when he doesn't find an opening for the gospel in the synagogue, he rents a lecture hall. He rents a classroom, as it were, and he brings all of those disciples, those individuals who are interested in hearing the truth of Christ, he brings them together, and he teaches them for two solid years. The scriptures tell us that all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Note this carefully. The preaching of Christ preceded the miracles, and Paul is expressly shown not to be the one doing the miracles, but that God is doing miracles by the hands of Paul, that he is the author of it. All of this to draw attention to the message that Paul is preaching, which he's been lecturing and teaching on for two full years. Some folks get the wrong idea. Notably, seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest. They are exorcists. These are individuals who will perform exorcisms, that is, they are in the business of casting out demons. There is undoubtedly some financial profit for it, for them, for doing this kind of work. And as they encounter the Apostle Paul and the amazing, miraculous, and supernatural power that follows Paul around, they think to themselves, oh, this is a good idea, we can take the name of Jesus, this, this magical incantenta- incantation that Paul is saying, the name of Christ, we can put that into our toolbox. We can use that, especially whenever we encounter really stubborn demons, and we can essentially enhance our ministry and enhance our bottom line just by taking that magical little formula in the name of Jesus and adding it to our repertoire. A scripture tells us what happens verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, quote, I adjure you, notice this, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They don't know Christ personally. They are not confident in the name of Christ on its own. They have not hoped in Jesus. They have not become one with Christ As we saw at the beginning of this chapter, Paul encounters 12 disciples. He notices there's something off about them, and he tells them about Christ. They hope in Jesus in such a way that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they have, through that indwelling, real power because they have called upon the name of Christ. These seven Jewish exorcists, these seven sons of Siva, they are not hoping in Christ in the way that those initial 12 disciples hoped in Christ. They're not saying, Jesus Christ, I adjure you by the name of the living God. They're not saying things like Paul, like what Peter preached way back in Acts chapter 4, the name and the only name under heaven given amongst men whereby men can be saved. They're not saying that sort of thing. They're saying, hey, Jesus whom Paul preaches, by that name, by that power that we've heard of, we command you to come out. They make an appeal to heaven that is not grounded in a personal relationship with Jesus and there is no response from heaven indeed the demon is just further infuriated notice what the text says verse 14 the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named siva were doing this verse 15 but the evil answered them the evil spirit answered them saying jesus I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? They are not, this demon is not impressed by these Jewish exorcists. He notices that they do not have a personal relationship with Christ and he does not feel particularly obligated to obey them And further, there is no power that descends upon these demon-possessed individuals from heaven at their command. There is no answer, no response from heaven. And the demon-possessed individual is so infuriated, infuriated, the demon inside of him, that what happens to them is actually quite shameful. Verse 16, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered, interesting translation, perfect translation, by the way, mastered all of them. This is one on seven, by the way. Seven full-grown adult men, seven men against one. Th- this is a serious beatdown. The text says that he did not prevail, he didn't manage to overcome. It says that he leaped on them and mastered them, all of them, and he overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They got beat up, just straight up beat down. I mean, that's what happened. But look at what happens next. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. Another way to understand that word extolled, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was made bigger. It was magnified. These guys, without surrendering to Christ, without trying to have a personal relationship with Christ, without humbling themselves and hoping in the cross and what Christ had done for them, took the name of Jesus without truly embracing him as Lord. And they took that name and they put it in their pocket as though it were some sort of a magical incantation we a lucky rabbit's foot, as though it were some sort of a talisman that they could use and say, hocus pocus, abracadabra, we command you in the name of Jesus, not knowing who he is, but you know, that one that Paul preaches, this guy, yeah, yeah, hocus pocus, abracadabra, obey us. And the demon said, what? No, no, indeed, I'm going to now master you and strip the clothes off of you, and you're going to run shamed and embarrassed from this house a word of warning to all of us, church. A number of years ago, this is probably four years ago, five years ago now, a dear friend of mine whom I knew when I served in the military called me. And he began to ask me questions about which type of Bible he should purchase. Now, we had served in the Marines together, what you might call a friend of mine. And uh, he he did not believe in Jesus Christ when, when I knew him back in the Corps. And so when he called and began asking me questions about Bibles and Bible translations, I was excited. I thought perhaps God was doing a work in his heart. And so he began asking me questions. You know, they've got different translations, NIV, King James, ESV. Which which translation do you think is the best? We reminisced, of course, about our time in the Marine Corps together. And I shared with, we shared back and forth about old times. And, and, and I asked him, I said, so are you... Are you at a place where you're accepting Jesus as Lord? And he said to me, well, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I said, well, uh, tell me, what is your interest in the scriptures? And he says, you know, he was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. He said, you know, when I go to Afghanistan, I'd just like to have a Bible with me to keep on hand. I said, okay, that's great, that's great. What, what, what do you want the Bible for? He's like, you know, maybe, maybe at night I might read it or something if, you know, when I come off shift and it's boring and there's nothing to do, and I, I'd be curious to read a little bit more about it. And I said, that's great, that's really great. And so we began to talk about translations, and I began to say... How important it was to have a good translation because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. And you wanted an accurate translation. You didn't want any one of these newer, fancier paraphrases or anything like that. You wanted to be able to just read the Word of God and have the Lord speak to you word for word as He spoke so many centuries ago through the hands of Paul and Peter and, and Luke and these guys. And He said, Uh huh, okay. But He says, I-, I just got one problem though. You're really, you're really recommending the ESV, and I appreciate that, but the the pocket version of the ESV, you know, it doesn't, you know, I'm looking at the dimensions here on, on Amazon, and it, the dimensions on it, it won't quite fit inside my, inside my pocket of my, of my uniform. I said, oh, that's, you know, that's okay. Like, you'll still come back to base camp at night, right? Like, you'll go on patrol, but you'll come back, and you'll be able to read it when you come back. And he said, yeah, there's that, there's that, but really, I'd like to just put it in my, in my pocket more than anything else. And I was a bit, like, flummoxed. I was like, well, I mean, why? Like, you, you know, I know these guys all truck around with their cell phones in combat. I mean, let's be honest. This is the 21st century. They've got digital versions of the Bible and all of this kind of stuff, and they've got cell phones, and they use all of these sorts of things on the battlefield, just like you and I have them here. And he, he was like, no, 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 like, I want, I want a Bible that I can just, I want to make sure it fits in my pocket. I said, tell me, why are you, why, why is it so, why is that the defining feature? Because what he was saying was, you know, I'm going to get a TNIV, a today's NIV. It's not a good translation. I would discourage any of you from, from buying it. He said, I want to get that. I said, why? He says, it'll fit in my pocket. I said, why is it so important for you to have the Bible in your pocket? And he says to me, have you ever seen that movie uh, American Sniper? And at that time, I honestly hadn't seen it. I have since seen it, but I said no. And he said, well, in that movie, there's this Navy SEAL, and, and he's a Christian, and he's, uh, he goes into combat, and, uh, you know, nothing, nothing bad happens to him until, like, the very end of the movie when he's back stateside. And I said, huh? And he says, well, I, I'm just thinking that because he was a Christian, you know, in that movie, he always has a Bible with him, and I'm thinking the Bible is what kept him safe. And I said, you think that? He said, yeah, yeah. And he says, let me, let me just ask you a question if I were to have that Bible in my pocket, like, you know, maybe it would like stop a bullet or something if I got shot. Do you think it'd stop a bullet? And his name was Mark. And I said, Mark, praise God. Let me just tell you what would happen. If you got shot with either an AR, with with an AK round or or something larger, a larger caliber round, you know what's going to happen to that Bible in your pocket? He says, what? And he's getting kind of excited. And I said, that bullet is going to fly across the battlefield and it's going to hit you in your chest pocket where you keep your Bible. And it's going to enter into that Bible. And do you know what's going to happen? And he's like, tell me, what's going to happen? It's going to work, isn't it? I said, no, it's going to blow right through that Bible and it's going to enter into your chest and you're going to die right there on the battlefield as a result of a gaping chest wound. And he says, well, why? He says, let me, let me just be really honest with you. I find that really offensive to God. And I said, you find that offensive to God? And he says, yes, because if people saw me get shot in the Bible in my pocket and still die from it, then wouldn't that lead people to dismiss God as not being all powerful? And I said, you know, the God that I worship created everything. And he said, uh-huh. And I said, I think people would worship the Lord even if your Bible got blown to pieces on the battlefield. Do you know why? He said, why is that? I said, because the bullet obeyed. The bullet obeyed the laws of physics, and it honored the Lord who created it. And if you would be saved, you also need to obey the Lord who created you. We do this as well. In our churches, we reduce the name of Christ to nothing more than a lucky charm. We have ministries all over this city and in churches all across North America and around the world that believing that that teach and believe that the preaching of the name of Christ, just saying Christ is all that is necessary and the Submission and the humility, and coming and calling upon the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins and asking Him to change you from the inside out, those are secondary things. Calling for obedience as an act of faith, those are secondary things. And all we really need to do is to teach people just to name the name of Christ. And they're calling people to the front Pray this prayer, Jesus, save me. And then they're encouraging people. People, if you prayed that prayer, it has essentially become a magical formula such as hocus-pocus and abracadabra. And if you just say that, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven when you die. Some of you are here this morning you're thinking, no, 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 it's not quite like that. Yes, it is. And I'll give you one example, just one to make my point. About 50 years ago, there was a man who was struggling with alcoholism. And he was a Christian man. And he got down on his hands and knees and he prayed to God. He said, God, change me from the inside out and deliver me from alcoholism. And the Lord heard that prayer. And because he was hoping in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, the Lord answered that prayer. That man then went on to establish a worldwide ministry to help alcoholics. You know it today, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that man, when he, re- when he looked back on his journey out of addiction to alcohol, into deliverance, into salvation, he understood that there were 12 basic steps that he took in obedience to Jesus Christ. And as he st- was struggling to help other alcoholics, he reduced this down into 12 basic steps to help everyone. And since that time, these 12 steps godly, Christ-centered, Christ-focused steps have been minimized by Alcoholics Anonymous and various Christian ministries the world over to essentially reduce repentance and surrender to the Lord as something that is entirely at your own whim that you can do and that God can be turned into whomever you want him to be. The 12 steps, and I won't go through all of them, but just listen. Number one, we admit that we are powerless over alcohol. We admit that this owns us. That's an act of humility. Fair enough. We admit that our lives have become unmanageable. I dare say it's a lot worse than that. Your lives are now objects of destruction awaiting the wrath of God. It's not that you're not able to manage it. It's far more serious than that. But this is what the first step has now become. Step two, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Wonderful. That is exactly right. And as it was proclaimed 50 years ago, that gospel message was powerful. It was the same gospel message as what Paul was preaching. But they changed it. We have come to believe in a power greater than ourselves and we have made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Notice the the change. As we understand him. Jesus is not mentioned. Alcoholics Anonymous isn't saying the Jesus whom Paul proclaims can save you. They're not even going as far as these seven sons of Siva went. They're simply saying, make up your own God. Call out to your own power. Let him be whatever you want him to be. Conceive of him as you'd like, and then surrender to him. This is not the biblical gospel. And it goes further. It goes further. Admit to God and to another human being the exact nature of your wrong. Which is what exactly? If we define God how we like, then we can define our sin as we like. So now alcoholic anonymous counselors aren't even really sure how to quantify or how to talk about alcoholism, and if you step back and you look at the literature, it is no longer understood to be a sin, alcoholism is regarded as a disease, It's something for which you are not necessarily guilty. It is something for which you have a genetic predilection to engaging in it. This is not the biblical gospel. This is not the salvation that Christ is calling for. This is not the transformation that he and he alone is capable of working. Whether or not we call upon the name of Christ or we tuck a Bible into our pocket, or perhaps we're Catholic and we have a patron saint that we like to pray to for help and deliverance, whether or not we have a fancy cross we hang around our neck that our grandmother gave us, none of these things, though meaningful you might find them, none of these things will ever bring salvation. And if you think God is embarrassed to allow someone to die on the field of battle when a bullet blows through that Bible, if you think God would be embarrassed to allow you to suffer the consequences of your sin, even though you wear a golden cross around your neck, think again. God is glorified no matter what happens to you. God will be praised, the gospel will be proclaimed, and the true name of Jesus Christ will be extolled and magnified, either as an act of your worship or as an act of your judgment. Notice what happens here. These seven sons of Siva, they try to invoke the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. The demon whoops them and whoops them good. And notice what comes next. Does everybody then say, whoa, I guess that Jesus name didn't work out. I guess we should all just forget about the name of Jesus. No, not at all. Notice what happens. It says in verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul has been preaching this for two years. These guys come along and they try to grab the name of Jesus and use it for their own purposes. But everyone knows the truth. It says that, that what happened to those guys, those, those sons of Siva, becomes known to everyone. And look at the response. Fear fell upon them all. They were just as awestruck by the name of Christ through these seven sons of Siva trying to play fast and loose with it as they were by the miraculous power of God working through Paul. The world knows the difference. The mistake we make is that we can play this game where we pretend outwardly we're a Christian and the world is going to buy into that, but inwardly we are liars and hypocrites who are not surrendering to Christ. The world sees it. The world knows a real Christian with the real Holy Spirit indwelling that person as opposed to the pretender. The world sees it. God reveals it. It's clearly known. You might think you're doing a good job of masquerading. You might think you're convincing, but you're not. And when God is exalted in whatever way he is exalted in your life, whether as your Savior or whether as some sort of magical formula that you tried to turn him into, when he does exalt himself, the truth is clear. God will be glorified. They feared, and the the fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus Christ was made even bigger. It was extolled. It was magnified. And look at the response. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found that it came out to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 50,000 pieces of silver. You're probably asking yourself how much... How much is that? A middle wage earner in the first century would have earned about a piece of silver per day. A, a middle income, you know, middle of the road family, their dad going out to work at his nine to five would have earned about a piece of silver per day. So if you do the math, 365 days in a year, 50 years, it comes out to be about 136 years of wages. That's a lot of money to be spent on magic books, on sorcery books. They see that there's no power in any of those things, and they are humbled that the name of Christ, it is powerful, but it will not be manipulated. And they recognize that their only hope, unlike these poor seven sons of Siva, their only hope is by hoping in Jesus Christ. They are fulfilling the prophecy Did you know that? The prophecy which was given in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43. Don't flip there. Just listen. In Isaiah 43, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. He says, Bring out the people who are deaf, yet they have ears. Prophet Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, saying, There are people who, who see, they've got eyeballs and, and they've got ears, they can see and they can hear, but they don't see and they don't really hear. He says, Bring those people out. He says, All the nations gather together, assemble all the peoples. Who among them can declare this and show forth the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and then let them hear and say it is true. Paul, uh, sorry, Isaiah is speaking rhetorically. He is saying, you know, these people who hope in all of these various things, go ahead, let's see what they got. These people who claim to see, who claim to hear, but don't hear or see anything, let, let them go ahead and give it their best shot. And the prophet Isaiah goes further You are my witnesses. You are my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God is saying, I am God. I am the sovereign one. You see it. You know it. He says, before me, no God was ever formed, nor shall there be any after me. I and I alone am the Lord. And besides me, there is no other Savior. I declared and I have saved and I have proclaimed when there was no other God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Henceforth, I am he, and there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and tell me who could ever turn it back. What God is saying in that prophecy through Isaiah is that he is God he is the sovereign one and he's inviting his people to delight and to stand in awe and wonder of his sovereignty of his power of his omnipotence to look at the true God the only God the one who acts and no one can change it the one who saves and there is no other savior to look at that and to stand in awe and wonder But that is not the end of our worship. That is not the apex of our calling. God nurtures our wonder at the fact that he is God and he alone is God by directing our attention to his absolute sovereignty. Why, you wonder? Because absolute power and absolute sovereignty, it is truly a breathtaking sight to behold. These seven sons of Siva who tried to take the name of Christ and manipulate it in order to work a miracle, God in heaven is silent. He says, you can try all you want, but I am the one who saves. When they're looking at Paul, they're seeing Paul do all these miracles, and handkerchiefs are being brought, and people are being healed. And they're thinking, Paul has somehow tapped into a magical formula, and we can have that magical formula too. And God and the prophet Isaiah is saying, No, it is not Paul. It is no other God. It is no magical formula. There is no other deity. He says, Stand and look at me and be witnesses. I am God. He is God, and there is no other. And he calls his people to look at that, to look at his sovereignty, that he and he alone is absolute in order that they may stand in wonder and awe for the sake of being his witnesses. You recall the passage starts out, call to me, my witnesses, call to me, my chosen servant. God nurtures our wonder at his deity by directing our attention to his sovereignty But we ask, does God nurture this wonder in us merely as a private, personal experience? No. No, he doesn't. He nurtures this wonder in us in order that we may worship him and proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. Think about what they're doing here in Ephesus. They've got 136 years' worth of wages invested in magic books in a city that's famous for magic. It would have been no problem whatsoever for them to take these magic books, to put them in a pawn shop, to sell them, to recoup some of that money. When they burn those books, church when they do it publicly, as the text says, in the sight of all, they're doing it as an act of worship and defiance against all false deities and false powers. They are saying God and God alone is God. And all this other stuff we're hoping in, all this other stuff that we're messing around with, it's all a lie and to show you how serious we are about proclaiming the truth. We take 136 years worth of wages invested in magical books, and we're going to have a great bonfire party. Let the world see it and take note. There is only one God. If you're here today, and you're probably messing around with Jesus, some of you are for sure, thinking that he's just a name that you can whisper at night that he's just some sort of a magical incantation a formula you just say the prayer and that's all you need understand that this this chapter in acts chapter 19 it begins with the apostle paul encountering 12 men who did not have union with jesus christ And you might be here today, and you might be invoking the name of Christ in such a way that there's no difference between you and these seven sons of Siva. He might be little more than a lucky rabbit's foot, a magical talisman, some sort of a totem that you tuck away in your pocket and you hold on to at night. And I want you to know, you will not be delivered, you will not be saved unless you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. When you call out to heaven, heaven will answer if you will surrender yourself completely into the hands of Jesus Christ. Look back, chapter 19. The apostle Paul, he says to these guys, these 12 guys that he sees in Ephesus, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, we were baptized into John the Baptist's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance. That's where it starts. A heart that is willing to say, no to me, no to my will, now I will obey the Lord. But even though that's where it starts, you have no power to be successful, even if that's the aim of your life. You must have Christ. Christ. When Paul begins to explain to them, he says, John baptized, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, we aren't content with knowing about who Christ is. That will not produce salvation. We must step into Christ. I've been sharing this with a youth group on Thursday nights. I've been preaching Union with Christ here for the last two weeks. Favorite of all illustrations. Seven years ago, Walt Disney was beginning to open Disneyland in California. In the hustle to opening day, he was hiring people left, right, and center, just looking for different people to do different jobs. And a man came to him by the name of Sammy Wentworth. Sammy was a convicted felon. He'd robbed a bank. He'd gotten out on parole. He was a hardened criminal. Spent, thir- spent 20 years of his life in jail. Couldn't find work. He was a gnarly looking guy with tattoos up and down his arms, on his neck. Nobody would hire him. Tattoos in 1950 are way worse than what they are today, in case you were wondering. It just was not acceptable to hire somebody to work at a children's theme park in 1950 with tattoos. Walt gave him a chance, said, come work at the house of the mouse. Work at the house of the mouse as Mickey Mouse himself. Put on the suit. Walk around in the 100-degree heat, 100-degree Fahrenheit heat. Be Mickey Over the years, he did a great job. Kids came up to him having no idea that the man inside the mouse suit was a convicted con, was a convicted criminal, a bank robber, a man who'd done horrible time and learned horrible things while in jail. They never knew any of that. They only knew a man that looked like Mickey, that talked with a high, squeaky voice, who was always there to give hugs, who was always there to welcome children, to sit on his lap and to take pictures with Mom and Dad. That's all that they ever knew. Time and again, Sammy showed up for work, did a great job. Time and again, they offered him a promotion, they offered him a pay raise, but he elected to stay there as the mouse, making minimum wage for over 30 years. He had ample opportunity to climb the corporate ladder at Disney, but he chose to stay as Mickey Mouse. They said to him at the end of it all when he retired, why? Why? Why did you turn down so many different job opportunities and promotions and pay raises to stay as the mouse? And he said, you know... They didn't see me for who I really was. They saw me for who the mouse was. And they loved me with a love I have never received anywhere else. If you're here today, and you're thinking that all you need to do is repent and try harder. I'm going to tell you right now, you need a lot more than that. The Lord looks at you and he sees your good deeds as nothing more than filthy rags. You're going to need something radically different. You're going to need to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to step into a Jesus Christ costume. So that when God in heaven looks at you, he does not see you for what you are, for what you deserve. But when he looks at you, he sees Jesus, he sees his son. That's the position that we have by faith in the cross. But understand this, no one puts on Christ without also asking Jesus to step into them, into their own heart. In the same way that you have the unique privilege to put on Jesus, you must ask Jesus to put on you that is an interesting proposition because what that means is jesus is still jesus but when he wears you when he puts you on he brings the power of salvation into your heart he begins to save you by transforming you one little piece at a time from the inside out And it is by trusting in Christ and being baptized into the name of Christ that you can have real power. If that happens, then Jesus is not a formula. He's not a hocus-pocus, abracadabra. He's not a sinner's prayer that you say at the front. He's king. He's Lord. And he's a goal towards which you strive and struggle valiantly every day. Yet not you, but Christ in you. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I want you to know, you cannot trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins unless you also trust in him for delivering you from your sins. That's a prayer worth praying. And I want to assure you that if you pray that prayer, God is delighted to answer. Either way, verse 20, the word of the Lord continues. The word of the Lord will continue. It will increase. Christ's name will be magnified. And God will prevail mightily. Church, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the salvation that you bring. We thank you, Lord, that you bring it and only you bring it. That we can never manipulate you. We can never take hold of your name and use it for our own purposes. But that you, God, are delighted to baptize us into your name, to grant us to bear the name when we will hope entirely in you. Father, if there are any here today who are regarding your name as though it's some sort of a magic talisman, a lucky rabbit's foot, some sort of a charm, Father, we pray you just drive that lie from their mind, that you would remind them, that you would show them that whether they hope in you or not, either way, You will be glorified, and we delight to behold your glory, God. Our prayer this morning as we close, we think of our friends to the south. We think of politics. We think of the struggles, COVID-19, all these things around us. Lord, remind us that you are God, and there is none other. And cause us, Lord, to delight and rejoice in that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.